pray. Open your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 13. Jeremiah chapter 13. And tonight's lesson is the parable of the linen sash. The parable of the linen sash. This was one of Jeremiah's action sermons. And Jesus often used parables when he taught to illustrate a point telling a story. And it's a great way of teaching. Because a lot of times when you start to tell a story, it, it, it perks people up. They start to listen. They start to pay attention because everybody likes a good story. And so, you know, <clears throat> again, telling a story uh, helps to get the point across. And in the Old Testament, the prophets used parables. But they also used real experiences to illustrate truth in order to get people's attention. And they caused the people to wonder, what's he doing? Why is he doing that? What's going on? And again, he uses the, the action sermon again, and, and through it, they, they make their point. In chapter 13, it, it's one of these instances where the Lord is directing Jeremiah to do something that seems kind of strange. But through it all, God is going to speak his message to the people, to the nation. And when the point comes across, it will be very powerful. So let's read verses 1 through 11 of chapter 13. Thus, said the Lord to, thus the Lord said to me, Jeremiah, Go and get yourself a linen sash and put it around your waist, but do not put it in water. So I got a sash according to the word of the Lord. And I put it around my waist. And the word of the Lord came to me the second time, saying, Take the sash that you acquired, which is around your waist, and arise and go to the Euphrates River, and hide it there in a hole in the rock. So I went, and I hid, hid it by the Euphrates River, as the Lord commanded me. Now it came to pass after many days that the Lord said to me, Arise, go to the Euphrates, and take from there the sash what I, which I commanded you to hide there. Then I went to the Euphrates and dug, and I took the sash from the place where I had hidden it. And there was the sash ruined. It was profitable for nothing. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Thus says the Lord, In this manner I will ruin the pride of Judah and the great pride of Jerusalem. This evil people who refuse to hear my words... <clears throat> who follow the dictates of their hearts and walk after other gods to serve them and worship them shall be just like this sash, which is profitable for nothing. For as the sash clings to the waist of a man, so I have caused the whole house of Israel and the whole house of Judah to cling to me, says the Lord, that they may become my people for renown, for praise and for glory, but they would not hear. So God tells Jeremiah to go get a sash. A sash is kind of like a belt. And what it would do, it would tie it around their waist and they'd hold, it would hold their robe in. It would hold it, tie it together. And he was to wear it. And the sash was worn, like I said, to secure the flowing garments to get ready for service. The sash is a sign of service. Now, Jesus told his servants in Luke twelve thirty five, let your waist be girded. They were, they, were, they were to be ready for service. 
And Jesus girded himself with a linen cloth and began to wash the disciples' feet. The parable teaches that any object is of value only when it's used for its intended use. A sash that's designed to hold the loose garments close to the body isn't useful when it's buried in the damp ground, like it says in verse 4, and never washed. It would definitely get ruined, verse 7 tells us. So in the same way, Judah's pride was going to be brought down to ruin. And it's pride. Pride describes a self-exalting behavior that that uh, characterized Israel in its love for idols. And this pride is explained in the phrases uh, that are mentioned in verse 10, where it says they refuse to hear, they follow the dictates of their heart, and they walk after other gods. So those three phrases, you know, again, explain the pride of the people. This sash was no good because it would be dirty, it would be rotten, and in the same way, according to verse 9, Judah is useless as a nation unless she's fulfilling God's purpose for her. The dictates of their own hearts would be the way of their own proud choosing. They would be doing the things that they want to do. The parable suggests that Judah is as corrupt morally as Jeremiah's sash was physically. The fabric was rotten, it was dirty, and it was shredding. Sin decays the moral awareness or consciousness of man. And it lowers him to a, to a useless object that's only good to be thrown away. God had joined Israel to himself in a covenant relationship. As closely, as intimately as a man would tie a sash around his waist. Even with the special privileges that the covenant brought them, Judah failed God. And as a result, like a man who throws away a useless sash, so God was going to spoil the pride of Judah, in verse 9, by throwing her out of her land. Look at verse 12 now. Therefore, all right, in light of what he just said in verses 1 through 11, Therefore, you shall speak to them this word, Jeremiah. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Every bottle shall be filled with wine, and they will say to you, Do we not certainly know that every bottle would be filled with wine? So God tells Jeremiah, All right, now that I've told him what I said in verses 1 through 11, I want you to tell them this. All your wine jugs are going to be full of wine. And they're going to reply, Of course. We know that. You don't need to tell us that. You don't need to tell us how prosperous we're going to be. And this judgment is made, figuratively speaking here, to make them pay more attention to it and to make this, uh, what he tells them more effective. Jeremiah quoted a well-known proverb on the blessing of the plentiful wine, but the people would respond to it in a, in a derogatory way. Now, the bottle was really a clay storage jar that was used for wine or, or water and oil. It says here, thus says the Lord God of Israel, every bottle shall be filled with wine. In other words, those who have made themselves vessels of wrath because of their sins and are now only good for destruction are going to be filled with the wrath of God like a bottle is filled with wine. And they're going to be full of the fury of the Lord. And they're going to be brittle like bottles and like old bottles, new wine is poured into them and they're going to burst and they're they're going to be broken to pieces. They weren't quite sure what Jeremiah was saying, really. They weren't quite sure what Jeremiah meant by this, so they ridiculed him for it. 
They said, we know that every bottle is going to be filled with wine. You don't need to tell us, you know, how, how prosperous we're going to be. They're thinking, what's so strange about, about this thing that Jeremiah is saying? They're saying, we're basically, hey, Jeremiah, tell us something we don't know. Now, Jeremiah may have struck a nerve because they understood him to be possibly referring to their drunkenness. In Hosea 3.1, it says they loved their wine. They loved their false prophets who prophesied to them. They said to them, oh, be merry and enjoy your wine. Jeremiah said, go on. You'll have your bottles full of wine, but not the kind of wine you're thinking of, not the kind of wine that you like. They assumed that Jeremiah had some special spiritual meaning that wasn't good news for them. And he's confessing, you're right. This is what he meant. Verse 13. Then you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will fill all the inhabitants of this land, even the kings who sit on David's throne, the priests, the prophets, and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem with drunkenness. God says, Jeremiah, tell them this. No, this is what the Lord means. I'm going to fill everybody in this land with drunkenness, from the king who's sitting on David's throne, to the priests, to the prophets, right down to the common people who are living in Jerusalem. And they should be, or get lightheaded as they drink. A drunken man is correctly compared to a bottle full of wine, because when the wine is in, the sharpness and the wisdom and the goodness and all that is good is gone. Blessing is then turned into depravity among the leaders and the citizens of Jerusalem. And when he mentions all those involved, notice he mentions the kings, the priests, the prophets, inhabitants. That's a way of describing the whole religious and political nation by listing the different parts all involved. And then God threatens in verse 13, they will all be filled with drunkenness and confusion in their thoughts. They'll stutter in all of their talk. They'll stagger around in, in all of their movements and they won't know what to say or what to do, much less what they should say and do. And he says they will be sick of all the, all the things that they enjoy and throw them up like drunk men do. They won't be able to help themselves. This will be, he says, the condition of the priests, the prophets, false prophets, and those who live there. All of those who pretended to guide them he says, they, are, they were as depraved in their lusts and senses as any others. All the inhabitants of the land in Jerusalem were as far gone as the priests, the prophets, and the kings, and the inhabitants were. Verse 14. And I will dash them one against another, even the fathers and the sons together, says the Lord. I will not pity, nor spare, nor have mercy, but will destroy them. God says, I'm going to smash them together. I'm going to smash them against each other, even parents against children, says the Lord. I will not let my pity or mercy or compassion keep me from destroying them. The wine jars of God's wrath would be smashed and broken together. It's a picture of a devastated nation. And, and you know, as many of us know and have seen, drunken men are often quarrelsome, argumentative. And that's why they have sorrows. Those who sit long at the wine. So sin is their punishment. And it's the same here. Just like God did in Judges 9.23. God sent an evil spirit of ill will into the families and neighborhoods. 
that made them jealous and spiteful of each other. It made sons and fathers ready to tear each other apart. It made them an easy target, made them all an easy target for the enemy. And God says, I will not pity nor spare nor have mercy, but will destroy them. Because that's what they do to each other. Now the words pity here in verse 14, pity and spare and have mercy, those words emphasize the hopelessness of Judah's situation. Verse 15. Hear and give ear. Do not be proud for the Lord has spoken. Jeremiah is saying, hey, listen and pay attention. Don't be arrogant because the Lord has spoken. And the word proud here refers to self-exaltation and contempt. Hatred for the spoken or revealed word of God. And when God speaks, when he speaks to us by his prophets, that's what he's telling Jeremiah, Jeremiah is telling the people, when God speaks to you by his prophets, hey, don't think you're too good to be taught. Don't be scornful or or stubborn. Don't uh, uh, harden your hearts toward his word. Don't respect the messengers that bring God's message to you. Verse 16. He said, give glory to the Lord your God before he causes darkness and before your feet stumble on the dark mountains. And while you are looking for light, he turns it into the shadow of death and makes it dense darkness. Jeremiah says, give glory to the Lord your God before it's too late. He says to the people, acknowledge him before he brings darkness on you. That darkness will be, that, that causes you to stumble and to fall around on the darkening mountains. Because then, he says, when you look for light, you're only going to find terrible darkness and gloom. You see, he says, He's telling him to give glory to God and to praise and worship Him. And this verse warns about the consequences of failing to glorify God. That's what we're saved for. We are saved to give glory to God, honor to God. We are to give Him glory. We're to worship Him. And this here, this verse, verse 16, warns about the consequences of failing to glorify God. And this verse describes the the strong feeling, the intense feeling of God's displeasure here that he's bringing against his people. And in these these mountains, these rugged mountains that cover the the landscape of Judah, where walking in the dark is dangerous, he says, he was saying, there's going to be no hope or light for you guys. You won't discern it. You won't see it. You won't know it. Jeremiah is pleading with his his sinful countrymen to turn from their pride. Turn from their stubborn ways, their prideful ways, and to give glory to the Lord and acknowledge his sovereignty. That he's creator, that he's sovereign of the universe and of all the living so that darkness doesn't come upon them. And so that they don't stumble around and fall like they would in the nighttime, in the dark. Pride blinds a person to the right values. And pride brings darkness. That's why it's it's the top of the list of the things that God hates. Because it blinds people to Him. It keeps them from coming to the Lord. It, It keeps them from understanding right values. It brings darkness in their life. So really, what Jeremiah is saying here from the Lord is that the options are clear for you, Judah. 
Listen to the voice of God or else, as verse 16 says, the light will be turned into the shadow of death. Verse 17. But if you will hear it, my soul will weep in secret for your pride. My eyes will weep bitterly and run down with tears because the Lord's flock has been taken captive. Jeremiah says, okay, he says, in verse 16, he says, hey, you, you, the, the choice is clear. Listen to the voice of God so the, the light won't be turned into the, into the shadow of death. But in verse 17, he says, if you still refuse to listen, you see, he says, I'll weep secretly for you because of your pride. I'll weep alone in secret because of your pride. And he says, my eyes will just be, be crying tears. My eyes will overflow with tears because the Lord's flock, verse 12 said, will be led away into captivity. But on the other hand, if you will not hear, God says his soul will weep in secret for your pride because the Lord's flock will be taken captive. In other words, if they don't turn around and turn to the Lord, their captivity is inescapable. It's going to happen. Jeremiah, remember in last, uh, last week in, in, in chapter 12, Jeremiah had been told, don't pray for these people. Don't pray for the rebellious and unresponsive people of Judah. But here Jeremiah expresses his deep secret mourning for the Lord's flock because they've been carried away into captivity. Verses 18 and 19. Say to the king and to the queen mother, humble yourselves. Sit down, for your rule shall collapse the crown of your glory. The cities of the south shall be shut up, and no one shall open them, and Judah shall be carried off captive, all of it. It shall be wholly carried away captive. Jeremiah says, say to the king and his mother, come down from your throne and sit in the dust. Because the, 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 the glorious, wonderful crowns will soon be snatched off of your heads. He says the cities of the south will close their gates. And no one's going to be able to open those gates. And the people of Judah are going to be taken away as captives. And all the people will go into captivity. To see that there's no help for their problems. Jeremiah said, my eyes will greatly weep for you. Not so, because, not so much because my relations and friends and neighbors are in distress, but because you're the Lord's flock. You're the people of His pasture. You're the sheep of His pasture. And you're going to be carried away captive. And that should always sadden us the most when we see people you know, captured, held captive by sin. Because God's honor suffers. And, and the interest of his kingdom is weakened in people's lives. Jeremiah here, notice in, verse, uh, in, in the verse, is, is addressing the king and the queen mother. The king that he's addressing is Jehoiachin and his mother, Nehushta. Jeremiah says, hey, humble yourself. They have to humble themselves. They have to be ashamed of themselves. The king, again, was Jehoiachin, and his mother was Nehushta. The king's father, Jehoiakim, 
had surrendered to Nebuchadnezzar, but later rebelled. And Jeremiah is telling me, hey, if they didn't humble themselves, they would be brought down, and they would no longer rule. There would be no help from the south. There would be no help from Egypt. During Jehoiachin's reign, King Nebuchadnezzar's armies attacked Jerusalem, and both Jehoiachin and Nehusha surrendered. And Jehoiachin was sent to Babylon and imprisoned. So Jeremiah's prophecy that he preached early on in the beginning of this chapter, it came true. God's word will always come to pass. You know, it shows the truth of God. It shows the, the, the reliability of his word. It will always come to pass. And it's going to be, when this happens to them, it will be because of their own doing. Their own, their own doing is what undoes them. It will be because of their own, it will be their own unescapable ruin. And he says that the land will become a wasteland. In verse 19, he says, the cities of the south shall be shut up. They'll be a, a wasteland. The cities of Judah are going to be surrounded by the enemy or deserted by the people who are living in it, so no one will be going in or out of it. Again, Jeremiah uh, telling the people about the judgment that is coming and what God's going to do if they don't turn away from their idols. Look at verse 20. Lift up your eyes and see those who come from the north. Where is the flock that was given to you, your beautiful sheep? He says, open your eyes and see the armies marching down from the north. This is the Babylonians. He says, where's your flock? Where's your beautiful flock? That he gave you to take care of. He's telling the people, the leaders, where's the flock that God gave you to take care of? This beautiful flock. Jerusalem or Judah, the same place. Jerusalem is addressed here as a shepherdess who's lost her flock. Meaning probably the, the best of the people, the best of the inhabitants living there in Jerusalem. And Jeremiah says, lift up your eyes. He says, I see them. Those marching down from the north, I see the enemy. Look at them. See, look, lift up your eyes. They're marching towards you. They're coming to bring judgment upon you for your sins. And if you look, you can see them coming from the north, from the land of the Chaldeans. He says, he say, and look at how fast they're coming and how fierce they look. Jeremiah addresses himself to the king or possibly the city of the state here. Or the state. He says, what are, you, what are you going to do now with the people that you're responsible for? You know, and that's what he said in verse 20. He says, where's your flock? Your beautiful flock that God took you, that God gave you to take care of. He, he says, what are you going to do now with the people that God gave you to, to be responsible for? The people that you were supposed to protect? Where's your beautiful flock that was given to you, Judah, Jerusalem? Where can you take them now to protect them? Where can you take them now for shelter? How can they escape these vicious wolves, talking about the Babylonian army that was coming down on them right at the moment? Masters, these rulers, these leaders who were in charge of the people of Jerusalem, who God gave them this flock, these beautiful people to take responsibility for. Masters have to look at themselves as shepherds. And they have to look at those that they're responsible for as their flock. 
who have been entrusted to their care by God, who, have, who one day have to give an account of what God gave them to protect. And one day, we're going to all give an account for what God gave us to protect and take care of. They must take pleasure in, them, in those people that God gave them. They must take pleasure in them as their beautiful flock and think about how to protect them when they're in danger. Again, and that's, that's the thought that we must have. What will you say to God? What will I say to God when he calls on us to give an account for the respons- responsibility that he gave us in this life? The precious lives or the, the precious people and, and responsibility that, that he, he, he gave us to take care of. Verse 21. What will you say? Notice, what will you say when he punishes you? For you have taught them to be chieftains, to be head over you. Will not pangs seize you like a woman in labor? Jeremiah says, what will you say when people that you thought were your friends conquer you and rule over you? Again, the the, the Babylonians and Egypt and all those that they looked for help to. What are you going to do when you thought they were your friends and they conquer you and rule over you? You will be in pain like a woman giving birth. And this verse seems to suggest that Judah had cooperated with its enemies as they started to take over the nation. And the, the, the illustration or the metaphor of childbirth portrays Judah reaping the fruits of its labors in pain and anguish. There's nothing you can say Whatever happens to you, all you can say is, God is just. And whatever God does, He is just. And people who lie to themselves with hopes of not being punished, what will they say? What will you think now about your foolishness and and giving the, the Chaldeans or the Babylonians power over you by going to them for help and partnering up with them. They went to the world to seek help and protection and whatever else they were looking for. He says, how will you deal with the trouble that you brought upon yourself? That you invited into your life by going to the enemy to seek help. He says, that trouble that you invited into your life is going to hit you like the labor pains of a woman giving birth and there's nothing you can do to escape them. Verse 22. And if you say in your heart, why have these things come upon me? He says, for the greatness of your iniquity, your skirts have been uncovered and your heels made bare. When the people begin to experience God's judgment, Jeremiah says, you might ask yourself, which many times we do, why is all of this happening to me? And Jeremiah says, because of your many sins. He says, your skirt was torn off and your sandals were taken away. Now, according to the law of Moses, prostitution was not permitted in the land. And exposing them publicly sometimes, uh, again, exposing them sometimes publicly, disgraced the prostitutes. And if a prostitute finds herself stripped, shamed, and abused, why should she be surprised? Because that was the consequences of her sin. 
Same thing with the people. Why should you ask yourselves, why? Why is this happening to me? What's the consequences of your own sin? You brought this upon yourself, the judgment of God. You, you invited it in. The people of Judah prostituted themselves to heathen idols. They were the love of their life. They're the things that they gave their faithfulness to, their, their lives to. And they turned to these idols and to, they turned to godless nations for help. And now they're asking, why? Why have all of these things happened to us? People many times live as though sin has no consequences. Nothing's going to happen to me. But even though they, they, they fool themselves and they think the sin isn't going to touch them or they're going to escape uh, the, the consequences of sin, they're going to come just the same. It's the word of God. It's the principle of God. Judgment will come. You're only deceiving yourself. You're only lying to yourself thinking nothing's going to happen. Jeremiah said here, your skirts have been uncovered. In other words, Judah would be shamed by his conquerors, the Babylonians, in the same way that a prostitute was publicly disgraced. But here the ruin is threatened like before, that the Jews will go into captivity and they will fall under all the miseries of poverty and bondage and they will be stripped of their clothes. Verse 23. Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard its spots? Then may you also do good who are accustomed to to do evil. Jeremiah says, can the Ethiopian change the color of his skin? Can a leopard take away its spots? He says, neither can you start doing good. Notice, because you've always done evil. It's a a negative rhetorical question, not meant for an answer, but for them to think about what was being asked. Can you change the color of your skin? Can you change the leopard's spots? So that negative rhetorical question confirmed Judah's inability to change their ways. They couldn't. The nation had strengthened its habit of doing evil. They were in such a, a routine and a habit of doing wrong, doing evil, and they had been doing it for so long that they didn't know how to do good. They didn't know how to do good. And it was because of their stubbornness in sin. Because for so long, they were so used to their sin that there was little hope for them to change, little hope for them to stop. They'd been doing it for so long. They had been doing evil for so long. They were taught to do evil. They had been educated and brought up in sin. They made it their business all of their life. And they did it so much. And for so long, it became second nature to them. So their prophets... The prophets that God sent, they all but gave a hope of ever seeing those people do good. But this was the prophet's goal. God sent them to persuade them to stop doing evil and to learn to do good and to turn from idols and to follow God. But, but the prophets couldn't get through to them. They could, God's prophets couldn't get through to them. For so long, they were used to doing evil that it was next to impossible for them to repent and to change and to start doing good. Think about that. That's the danger of constant sin. 
It becomes such a way of life. It becomes such a pattern in the brain that you can't change. Every time you say no to God, that, 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 that no decision, when you say it, it becomes firmer and firmer. Every time you say no, you become just harder in that decision until one day there's no sensitivity to the word of God. There's no sensitivity to the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Constant sin is a huge obstacle to turning from sin. Those that, that have been used to living a life of sin for so long, they've, they've shaken off. They've shaken off the fear of God. They've shaken off the shame of sin. Their consciences are seared like a hot iron, Paul said. It's, their, their consciences are calloused. They're hardened. They become hard and cold. The habits of sin are established. They are now set. They are now deeply rooted in the people's soul. And it calls for a remedy that only God can bring. It calls for a remedy. And it's fair for God to give those up to their own hearts, lusts, who have refused over and over again to give themselves up to His grace. Sin, sin, hey, sin comes natural. We all know that. It's natural to us because we were born in it. So that we can't get rid of it through any power of our own. Listen to what the psalmist said in Psalm 49, verses 6 through 9. The Amplified Version. Even of those who trust in and lean on their wealth and boast of the abundance of their riches, none of them can by any means redeem either himself or his brother, nor give to God a ransom for him. For the ransom of a life is too costly and the price one can pay can never suffice so that he should live for on forever and never see the pit for the grave and corruption. There is no life on earth no one on earth that could pay the price for man's redemption. There was but one, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. There is an almighty grace that's able to change anyone. And that grace is not lacking. And it's available to, to those who earnestly seek Christ and who earnestly recognize their need for Jesus. Verse 24 and verse 25. Therefore, I will scatter them like stubble that passes away by the wind of the wilderness. This is your lot, the portion of your measures from me, says the Lord. Because, notice, you have forgotten me and trusted in falsehood. He's telling them the judgment that I've been talking about. He says, this is, this is yours. This is your lot in life. Why? Because you have forgotten me. And he says, I'm going to scatter you like chaff blown away by the desert winds. He says, this is your lot in life. This is your portion that I've assigned to you. Why? Because you have forgotten me. And you put your trust in false gods. So the consequences of Judah's rebellion, continual rebellion, would be scattering its inhabitants, those who were living in Jerusalem. He would scatter them like chaff or stubble that was blown, blowing them away by the desert wind. The word falsehood is one of the key terms that Jeremiah uses to refer to the false worship of, of foreign gods, the idols. 
And it's because they abandoned the God of truth and depended upon lies that he scattered them. He says, this is going to be the share of your ministry, the miseries, the punishment assigned to you. This is the allotment I assigned to you. Your share in the world's miseries, expect it and don't think you'll get out of it. Don't think you'll escape it. And it's because you have forgotten me. He's saying, you have forgotten the kindness that I have given you. You have forgotten the responsibilities that you had to me and you had no awareness of me. You didn't remember me. And you know what? Forgetting God is at the bottom of all sin. He said, because you have forgotten me, you've trusted in falsehood, you've trusted in idols, you've trusted in the arms of the flesh, Egypt, Assyria, and in the self-flatteries. You know, flattering yourself, deceiving yourself that you're okay. That there won't be any consequences to sin. Whatever those things people trust in that forsake God, they'll find it to be weak and broken. Verse 26. Therefore, I will uncover your skirts over your face that your shame may appear. He says, I myself will strip you and expose you to shame, God says. I will uncover your skirts. This this refers to public exposure. He'll just expose all of their sin. Since Judah had lustfully pursued adulterous relationships with foreign gods and goddesses, God's going to expose them and bring shame to the way they behaved. Verse 27, he says, I have seen your adulteries and your lustful names, the lewdness of your harlotry, your abominations on the hills in the fields. Woe to you, O Jerusalem. Will you still not be made clean? He tells the people, I, I've seen your adultery and I've seen your lusts. And speaking about lusting after foreign lovers, meaning the foreign gods. I've seen your disgusting idol worship out in the fields and on the hills. And he says, because of that, he says, what sorrow awaits you, Jerusalem? How long before you become pure the word adulteries here are literally sins against marriage and it's applied to israel uh the the, uh, being applied to israel the word means involvement with another nation's gods it was a spiritual adultery they left the true and living god for the love of false gods of other nations The words lustful names here refers to animals in heat pursuing mates. He said the the lewdness of your harlotry describes both physical and spiritual prostitution. And it's because of their idolatry and their spiritual faithlessness that sin, which is of all sins, the one that angers God the most. Faithlessness to Him. They're exposed to because of that, to a shameful disaster. Because they've been guilty of a shameful sin. And verse 7 says, and yet they're still not ashamed. He says, even though I've seen your adulteries, your foolish desire for strange gods, you're, you're, you're not ashamed. He said, I've seen the lewdness of your faithlessness. Your disrespect and your your." ravenous appetites for them. He says, your eager worshiping of the idols on the hills and in the fields and on the high places, this is why these woes are upon you. 
And even though God said it was next to impossible for them to do good in verse 23, he still reasons with them to repent. What a gracious God, merciful God. And because as, you see, because as long as there's life, there's hope. He says, will you still not be made clean at the end of verse 27? I've seen all these things that you've done. Will you still not be made clean? It should be, it should be very concerning to people who are corrupted by sin to be made clean by repentance and, and by faith in Christ and, and, and the, the transformation that the gospel brings. The reason why sinners aren't made clean is because they don't want to be made clean. And, and I mean, that, that's really unreasonable behavior. And, and the, the thing is, if you don't do it now, you may never do it at all. And that's the importance of hearing God's word and listening to the conviction of the Holy Spirit. That's why Paul said, today, now is the accepted time. Today is the day of salvation. Why is it such an urgent time? Because you're not guaranteed a single second. God's word says that God holds our breath, our life in his very hand. And man, he can put our light out anytime. We don't know when that time is. And again, if you don't receive Christ now, you may never do it. Let's pray. Father, we come before you. And Father, we do pray, Lord, that your spirit would be touching hearts right now, Father. <coughs> hearts here, Lord. Maybe those who are watching. And Father, the consequences of our sin are consequences that we bring upon our own selves, God. You've done everything you can to keep us from going to hell. It's not that we can't come to Christ, but we won't. But again, if you don't do it now, you may never do it. If you're here this evening, man, and you don't know Jesus Christ or your Lord and Savior, or you're watching tonight at home, and you don't know Jesus Christ. And God is speaking to you right now. I pray that you would recognize that there is no logical reason for me not receiving Christ right now. And if you recognize your need for Christ. I want to say this prayer out loud, the sinner's prayer. I want to say, I'll say it out loud and, and, and you repeat it to the Lord with all of your heart. You pray it with me. Dear Jesus, please forgive me, Lord, for all of my sins. I confess to you, I am a sinner. Please cleanse me and wash me of all of my sins. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. And help me now 
to walk with you all the days of my life. And thank you, Lord, for dying for me. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.